You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning. I uh, didn't introduce myself before, but um, my name is Matt Lemoyne, if you've not met before. And we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2 uh, with our time today. So if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles, page 973 uh, is where you'll find today's text. Uh, but let me just pray for us as you're turning there, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into Galatians 2. Our Father in heaven, compel us this morning simply to take you at your word. Move in us even now uh, by your Holy Spirit, and do not let us avoid your word without being caught up by its promises and by its powerful joy. Uh, we pray this for our sake, Father. We pray this for those whom we love. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior, who is our God. Amen. Amen. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. But when Cephas, that is the Apostle Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I, it's the Apostle Paul, speaking first person, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law... Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. This is, uh, and perhaps you're familiar with it, this is a fairly well-known incident in the New Testament. It's, it's not every day that one of Jesus' apostles calls out another one of Jesus' apostles, especially in a public, broad way. And the backdrop for this, this confrontation, is a racial and cultural conflict. You heard it back and forth in, in Galatians 2. Gentiles and Jews, Jews and Gentiles. This was the, the conflict between these two groups of people. There were those who descended from Abraham, those who could trace their bloodline back to the original 12 tribes of Israel, those who were given the laws of God through revelation to Moses on Mount Sinai, and there was everybody else. The early church had to labor for unity. They had to labor for 
reconciliation among different races. And if you were with us last year in our series through the book of Acts, you saw that you know, initially the church was almost solely made up of people from a Jewish background. It was almost all people from a Jewish background that came and put their faith in Jesus. But soon enough, although it was through significant reluctance on the part of some, soon enough Gentiles started putting their faith in Jesus too and pouring into the church. The apostle Peter, or Cephas as Paul calls him here, he was one of those Jewish background Christians who wrestled with this prejudice. He was really reluctant to welcome Gentiles into the church. And if you're with us in the series in the book of Acts, you saw that. Jesus had called his disciples to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends. You have to start to break beyond these racial and ethnic barriers. Peter was reluctant. And Jesus actually had to show up to Peter in a vision and tell him three times over, Peter, stop calling people unclean whom I have made clean. Stop doing that. Just because of the food they eat or their, their circumcision, uncircumcision, their, their lack of abiding by these ceremonial laws. Stop calling these people unclean that I came to make clean. Though we're looking at, at in some ways, this whole passage this morning, I want to especially focus on the first half of verse 14. So look there again at the first half of verse 14. Paul writes, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So there's these two Massive components there in that, in that statement. There's the truth of the gospel, and there's conduct that is in step with that truth. Gospel truth, gospel conduct. So we're just going to spend the rest of the time we have together this morning considering those two things and how specifically they shape our thoughts and shape our pursuit of racial reconciliation. So first, let's talk about gospel truth. Gospel truth. The entire book of Galatians, this whole letter that Paul writes, is about fighting for the purity of gospel truth. And namely, as it says there in verse 16, that justification does not come by works, but only by faith in Jesus. Now what does that mean? There's a lot of big Christian words and theological concepts in that. Justification is a declaration of innocence. Uh, Even more than that, a declaration of righteousness. It's how God declares sinful people not guilty of their sin. Sin is not, Paul is saying here, a debt that we can work off. And and what's more, nothing that you and I do can add to Jesus' work through his life and his death and his resurrection. So the gospel is not Jesus plus something else. The gospel is only Jesus and what he's done. And as Paul is saying here, as he says elsewhere in some of his other letters, Michael even read some of them for you earlier in our liturgy this morning, that means that the gospel is the great equalizer. The gospel is the great equalizer. It takes all of these other distinctions, all of these other uniquenesses about our identity, and it says all of those things are secondary. Secondary. It's not, as you heard Dr. Yancey affirm, it's not that they're unimportant. The distinctions, the uniquenesses, they still matter. We're not talking about being colorblind. And actually, the the differences add an incredible richness to the kingdom of God. And these differences are actually something 
that we see do not go away when Jesus returns in the fullness of his kingdom. We heard it in the call to worship this morning. When Jesus comes and completes the reconciliation of the world to himself, those distinctions remain in this beautiful picture. And gathered around God's throne, there's this uncountable multitude of people from what? From every tongue and tribe and nation and language. It's just that those things, our language, our nation, our tribe, our people group, our race, our ethnicity, the gospel, as this great equalizer says, all of those things sit second chair to a primary identity that is actually shared by all of us. What's that primary identity? Well, it really has three aspects. In God's image, in Adam, and in Christ. That's the primary identity we all share. So first, we are all in God's image. We have all been made by him to reflect something of of who he is himself. And this, as you might see and recognize, this is an equalizer. It means that every single human being, simply by being human, before they do anything at all, before they contribute anything, before any distinction is shown, simply by being human, they have value and worth, and they are due dignity and respect. At the same time, we are all in Adam. In other words, we are fallen. When Adam sinned, all of us were implicated in that, and we became depraved. You heard Dr. Yancey use that word as well, depravity, which means uh, that we became guilty and we became polluted by sin and by sin's effects. And so this, too, is a great equalizer. It's a great equalizer. Thaddeus Williams, in his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, he says it this way. He says, The doctrine of human depravity swings like a wrecking ball, leveling any ideology that says, my gender group, my ethnic group, my economic group makes me good and their group evil. Instead, as Paul writes in Romans, no one is righteous, not even one. That's what it means that we're all in Adam. And therefore, Third, the only hope for anyone, no matter what their background is, no matter what their demographics are, no matter what their race or ethnicity is, the only hope for anyone is Jesus. It's to be not only in God's image and not only in Adam, but to be in Christ. You can't rely on your heritage. You can't rely on your race or ethnicity. You can't rely on your own efforts. Even, and this is the remarkable part that maybe we miss being so culturally removed from what Paul's writing in Galatians, even the Jews, the chosen people, spiritual and privileged recipients of God's revelation through the law, their hope is, now, is no longer their privileged position. What is their hope? It's Christ. That's why Paul writes, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus, verse 16, in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Or as he goes on to write in the very next chapter in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one. How? In Christ. In Christ. So you see how the the gospel levels the playing field. It undermines any ground that we would have for boasting, for pride, for relying on any other part of our identity. And it also thereby undermines any ground we have for for viewing other people as superior or inferior based on those secondary aspects of identity. And when Peter here in Galatians 2, when he separates himself from eating with the Gentiles, he he has bought a lie. 
He's bought a lie. And he knows better. He, he had been living in light of the truth of the gospel, but now fearing this group of Jewish people from Jerusalem, the circumcision party as they're called, he goes back to elevating his heritage, to elevating the, the ceremonial law, things like who's circumcised and who's not, and dietary restrictions. And he's again making those things the criteria for superiority and inferiority, and who I'm willing to fellowship with and who I'm not willing to fellowship with. And church, this is the, this is the same lie that has continued to plague humanity in every generation. Every generation. We've seen it in the history of our own country. When because of their geography, when because of the amount of melanin in their skin, entire races, entire nations of people were considered less than fully human and treated as such. When people were forcibly relocated, when people were enslaved, when some decades even after all of that, people were continued to be segregated and subjected to things like Jim Crow laws. This is that lie surfacing over and over. This is taking secondary aspects of identity and making them primary. And it's taking primary aspects of our identity that we are in God's image, in Adam, and either in Christ or need to be in Christ and making those things secondary. Now here's what's so critical for, for us to see. In this cultural moment that we live in, it's trendy to care about social justice. It's a trendy thing. It's a widely shared cultural belief that racism is wrong and that racism needs to be stamped out. And as Christians, we should say wholeheartedly, yes and amen. We agree. We agree. But there are few people in our society who care to ask why. Why is racism wrong? Why is it wrong? If it's only wrong because the vast majority of people in this cultural moment say so, well, that's scary. That's terrifying, actually, because it wasn't that long ago that the vast majority of people in our culture said the opposite. Just like even right now, today, the vast majority of people in China seem to be okay with subjecting millions of their ethnic minority Uyghur population to labor camps and concentration camps. Majority opinion cannot be the why, cannot be the standard. God have mercy on any society that makes majority opinion the standard. Racism and racial injustice are wrong because they are built on this lie about human identity. That's why they're wrong. And gospel truth is the only sufficient answer. It's the only real foundation for us to understand why racism is so evil. Thaddeus Williams said it this way. He says, if we leave God out of our answer to why racism is, is evil, if we leave God out of our answer, we will fail to grasp the true diabolical depths of racism and find ourselves boxing ghosts of the real problem. He's, he's saying actually something very similar to what a man named William Wilberforce said 200 years earlier. As he was laboring tirelessly for, for the abolition of slavery across the British Empire, Wilberforce called it a fatal habit. That was his quote, a fatal habit to pursue Christian morals distinctly from Christian doctrines. In other words, Wilberforce was saying it's, it's deadly to build this external facade of ethics, of morality, to try to act the right way if you have no foundation of truth underneath it. Humanity does not evolve 
past these doctrines. Humanity does not evolve past our primary identity being in God's image, in Adam, and a need to be in Christ. And so as a society, if we start to take those things for granted, if we start to assume those things as some kind of backdrop while trying to pursue the external morality of that, then it will not be long before the whole thing collapses. It will not be long until the vast majority begin to commit injustices just just in a different direction. And I'm convinced this is what we're seeing some in our culture today. So some people in this cultural moment refuse to see racism anywhere. Other people see it absolutely everywhere. Some people refuse to think or act or pray about racial reconciliation, racial strife or tension at all. Other people act, but they, they act in ways that are actually built on something that is just as much a lie that was underneath racism in the first place. And so second, second, if that's gospel truth, let's talk about gospel conduct. Gospel conduct. What does it look like to relate to people, all people, but maybe in particular people of other races and ethnicities, in a way that is in step with the truth of the gospel? That's that line in verse 14. And and this morning, and for for many years now, we have used this phrase, racial reconciliation. Now, that's a word, maybe you've noticed, it's it's more and more being dropped uh, from cultural conversations about race and ethnicities in these days. Uh, Some of that, some of that is because words and phrases can become tired. Uh, They can become trite. And so for some people, racial reconciliation feels like a failed attempt, and so a new word can can represent a a renewed effort. And if that's the reason, if we just need a renewed effort, then then I can certainly appreciate that heart. I don't think we need to be married to a particular phrase in this. Uh, What I would say, though, is that if, if in a particular person or a particular group of people's minds, reconciliation ceases to be the goal, then we've actually lost a biblical vision. We're no longer conducting ourselves in step with the truth of the gospel, if that's the case. I was really grateful for uh, some insights from a woman named Monique Dusan. She's from the Center for Biblical Unity. Uh, she rightly emphasizes that people of all races and all ethnicities are reconciled in Jesus. In other words, positionally, this is a done deal. This is, a, this is a past tense thing. If you have put your faith in Jesus, then you positionally are reconciled with people, with different kinds of people who have done the same. And so our pursuit of reconciliation, of reconciled relationships with other people, is not, for, is not us trying to create something new. It's, trying, it's, it's actually us trying to live in light of what's already true. It's to step into the reconciliation that has been bought and secured by Jesus on the cross. But before we, as we rejoice in that, as we rejoice in truths like Ephesians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 3, which Michael read for us this morning, before we unfurl our mission accomplished banner, so to speak, we have work to do. It's hard work to live in light of this. It takes a long time for these gospel truths to fully permeate our hearts. It takes a long time to allow the truth of the gospel to transform our assumptions, to transform any prejudices that we might carry. None of us are beyond racial bias. None of us are beyond racial prejudice. I want you to remember this morning, even from Galatians 2, how long it took the early church 
The people who actually walked with Jesus, how long it took the apostle Peter. Even here in Galatians 2, he goes back and forth. He's eating with the Gentiles, then he's not eating with the Gentiles. Then Paul calls him out, and we imagine he probably did go back to eating with the Gentiles. So friends, let's never overestimate ourselves. Let's never forget that we were in Adam, that that depravity is pervasive in our lives, and that even when we are in Christ, even when we are in him, it takes a lifetime for all of the expressions of our old in-Adam nature to die. One degree of glory to another. It takes a lifetime for all of those things to die. So if anyone is less than in your mind, if there is something that another image bearer of God needs to do, needs to be, to receive your respect, then you are not conducting yourself in step with the truth. And if there's any reluctance, if you find any reluctance in your heart to welcome another Christian as a full brother or a full sister in Christ, then you are not conducting yourself in step with the truth. I would say even then related, if you're just categorically closed off to the idea that racism can be systematic, is not just a matter of individual sin, I would propose that you're overestimating humanity. You're overestimating humanity. You're forgetting that sinners make and maintain systems and that our depravity, personal a matter as it might be that we need reconciliation with God individually, our depravity can actually become codified in cultures and societies, and it has. In confronting injustice without compromising truth, uh, the contributors present, uh, they explore a a few present-day examples of where you might see the systemic aspects of this. So especially in things like housing, Practices like redlining, um, in certain aspects of the criminal justice system, and in things like callback rates for jobs, people that have identical resumes. I mean, they take the same resume, but if someone's name at the top of that resume sounds like they might have black skin, they get called back less than people who sound like they might have white skin. Gospel conduct, conducting ourselves in step with the truth of the gospel, means that we don't flippantly dismiss claims like that. We don't flippantly dismiss studies like that. We learn, we pray, we act to see that primary identities remain primary and don't become secondary. Now, at the very same time, the very same time, the gospel should always make us ask this question Is my approach to combating racism based on truth or based on a lie? Is my approach, does my approach, to combating racism, does that point to the grace of God? Or does it, as Paul puts it here in verse 21, does it nullify the grace of God? See, in this moment, a significant amount of our broader culture's fight against racism is based on a lie. It's based on a lie. It's based on a false gospel. In in many circles, racism has actually been redefined. It's been redefined. So no longer is it defined as viewing or treating people as inferior based on their race or ethnicity. The new definition that has been proposed in some circles is prejudice plus power. Prejudice plus power. So some would say that if you're a racial minority, it's not actually possible for you to be racist. You don't have the the power to do things with your racism, and so if you don't have power to do things with it, it can't be racist at all. Now, I understand that there's differences there. 
and that the effects of some of our sin can change based on the, 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 stat, the station we have in life, the position we have in life. But is that how God defines sin? Is, is that gospel truth? No, the, no, gospel truth says that wherever prejudice is found, that's sin. That's sin. See, we live in a moment where some people's sin isn't considered sin, and other people's sin is beyond redemption, beyond forgiveness. We live in a moment where sin and salvation are, are no longer a matter of justification by faith in Jesus, but they're a matter of what race or group or a group of people you belong to. We live in a moment where guilt or innocence is not defined by faith in Jesus. It's actually being defined by the color of your skin. And you see, that's how in a very deceitful way it comes full circle. Racism is a sin because these secondary aspects of identity become more important than being in God's image and in Adam and in Christ. But with this newer ideology, it's sometimes referred to as being woke or wokeism, that's the exact same thing in a different direction. Racism nullifies the grace of God. That's the reason for this, this confrontation in Galatians chapter 2. It slams the door of God's kingdom in people's faces. It says full inclusion and brotherhood and sisterhood with me is going to take something else from you. You have to become something else. You have to do something else first. But this new ideology, wokeism as we might call it, does the same thing. It too nullifies the grace of God. It creates its own version of the law. It creates its own standards that everyone has to attain. And unless you see racism in all the right places, unless you say all the right kinds of phrases and words, unless you read the right book, you cannot be, so to speak, saved. And some of us in this room have experienced the reality, the really painful outworking of this. People of other races and other ethnicities that You've, you're, you're friends with, and maybe you've been friends with and had a very long-standing relationship marked by love and compassion and joy, but all of a sudden in this moment, you're now constantly on eggshells with each other. She doesn't want to entertain any thoughts that racism could still be a reality. He's hyper-offended by everything without being willing to engage more deeply about it. Maybe they've even separated themselves from you. Maybe you've separated yourself from them. Oh, that God would give us eyes to see the mess that we make of this. The mess that we make of this. Would God help us step into the reconciliation that Jesus has purchased with his own blood? If there's one filter, if there's one question that I can give you this morning to apply to the way you live your life, it would be this. Does my life and my conduct, does it point people to the grace of God? Or does it instead nullify the grace of God? The gospel levels the playing field. It says there is one hope for all people. There's one hope for white supremacists, and there's one hope for the ultra-woke, and there's one hope for everybody in between. We must be crucified with Christ by faith in him. We must be crucified with Christ so that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. Now what if, what if, friends, in this cultural moment, we not only saw people repent of racism in these places that it still exists, but what if a ton of people that have bought into this new ideology came to see their own inability to keep their, their new codes and standards, their new law? What if they came to see their own need for the grace of God? 
A progressive echo chamber will tell you to hate and fear anyone who is not an anti-racist. A conservative echo chamber will tell you to hate and fear anyone who's woke. Pastor John down in Florida sent me an example of that. In Palm Beach this week, someone who lived in Palm Beach was going around to cars that had New York State license plates on them and putting uh, notes underneath their windshield wipers that said, if you're one of those woke people from New York, go away. You'll be happier somewhere else and so will we. Okay? That's what happens if you live in these echo chambers, progressive or conservative. Gospel conduct means you love all people. You love all people. Gospel conduct means you do not nullify the grace of God in any direction. And so I'm going to close just a little differently this morning than I normally do. Before we come to the table, I'm going to ask you right now to think of one or two real people. I want you to think of some names of real people who are hardest for you to love right now, especially as it would relate to, to this topic racial strife and tension, racial reconciliation. Maybe the people that come to your mind are people that you, they're part of a people group that you just struggle with. For whatever reason, you find you've still got some bias and prejudice in your heart. Maybe it's people who share your race, but in your mind, they just don't get it. They don't get it. Maybe they're people who are too woke. Maybe they're people who are not woke enough. Silently, just where you're sitting right now, And if it helps to write this down because you're a a writing processor, feel free to do that. But I want you to say this to yourself or to write this out to yourself. So-and-so is in God's image. Put their name in there. Name is in God's image. Name is in Adam. Fallen. They experience depravity just like you do. They are in Adam. And name is either in Christ or someone you desperately want, truly, if you're thinking about it clearly, someone you want to be in Christ. Carry that. If you wrote it down, carry that around with you this week. Pray for those people. Pray for your own heart and soul. Why it's hard for you to love them. They are in God's image. They are in Adam. May they be in Christ. Because we are saved only through faith in Christ. Because there is therefore now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. But we are all one in him. May we conduct ourselves in step with the truth of the gospel. May we not nullify the grace of God. Crucified with him, may we now live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord our God, you have given us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master Jesus Christ. Grant that as we joyfully receive this good news for ourselves, we would gratefully share it with others. And if there are others that we would struggle to share it with, if there are others that we would be reluctant to welcome as full brothers and sisters in Christ, would you expose that sin in our hearts even now? Would you make us people who constantly point to your grace in every direction, in every relationship? God forbid we nullify your grace. If righteousness could come through any other way, you would have died for nothing. But we were about to come to this table and remember, no, you had to die, Jesus. You had to die. There was no other way. And so help us now come proclaiming, pointing to, participating in your grace 
that is held out for all who would come, for all who would put their faith in Jesus. And that's how we come this morning to this table. Pray it all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.